Hey, love. Will you have the drink? Uh, I want a G&T. All right. Sounds good. Let's do it. This is Where is the Love. I'm Michael Ware. I'm Melissa Ware. And it's uh, it's good to be with you. I know, folks, it's been a, a long week, an intense week, um, just, you know, watching the news. Obviously, there are, we may have some listeners who have uh, more personal uh, ties. And so, obviously, we've all been praying for Ukraine, for the Ukrainian people for uh, for Christians in Ukraine uh, and really for for the for the whole region um, and that's what we're gonna talk about on the show uh, today so uh, a, a less light-hearted episode uh, this this time around and probably the best way to sort of jump in is uh, by talking about Melissa's piece that she wrote for the Substack at reclaiminghope.substack.com. Uh, Melissa wrote an uh, essay that was really well received, and I thought uh, she, she asked some, some questions that, that are not only salient now, but uh, I think will be salient uh, moving forward uh, as we all, and particularly policymakers, come to terms with the fact that, that Russia has decided to take the course of action that it has. Melissa, why don't you tell folks about, about what you wrote and, and, and why you wrote it? Yes, the piece is called We Lack the Ability to Ideate and Innovate on Foreign Policy. And this is something that I've been thinking about for a good 10 to 12 years, and so it just flowed out of me the other day. Um, and I just want to read from the piece to be able to summarize it for you all. Why does it feel like this particular war is hopeless at this time? It's because our narratives and our international myths. If you get a degree in political science or international relations or some variation of the two, you learn about World War I and World War II and the post-World War II global order. You learn about the origins of NATO and the Marshall Plan. Some even learn about the political origins of the EU. The Treaty of Rome was signed in 1957 to contain Germany and prevent a third war on Europe's continent. Since the fall of the USSR in 1989, students of politics have been taught that Europe is one of the most boring regions. It's at peace and will remain at peace. You essentially learn that Bosnia and Kosovo in the 90s, though inside European borders, were essentially blips or bumps in the road. So many cite Francis Fukuyama's The End of History, mostly in parody now, but the idea that we've achieved liberal nirvana is strong, still in the ivory towers where American diplomats and analysts and politicos and foreign correspondents are trained. And if most are trained like this, then it gets reinforced when these students go out into the world, even as they gain promotions and move institution to institution. Um, and what does this lead to? It leads to a foreign policy establishment that is more or less lacking ideas and imagination. And then I go on to talk about our foreign policy toolbox and how it's been extremely limited over the past 20 to 25 years since the fall of, of um, the Berlin Wall and with the lack of tools and then and then students who go on to you know have high positions in all sorts of places um, have been taught that Europe you know is at peace what it leads to is a policy anemia 
I think that if you're if you've been sitting here for the past three days since this war began, or even in, in a couple weeks prior, as we've been covering for for folks who read our newsletter, um, and you've been wondering, okay, so it's either we invade or we post sanctions or we do diplomacy. What else is there? Is that all we can do? Those are key questions. Those are very good questions. And I think the fact that someone like me and others who, who you know, have been trained in this, who are asking these questions, is also not a good thing. And so this lack of innovation is leading to a policy anemia. We need, we need to be able to work with the tools in the world that we live in in 2022. And I think all of our tools are quite old and stayed, even if some of them might end up working, like these sanctions. What were your thoughts, Michael? Yeah, no, I, I thought your piece was great, and I think it it one of the one of the reasons it worked was it spoke to uh, both a very specific um, sort of policy challenge that is relevant to you know a pretty narrow set of actors, diplomats, uh, uh, policymakers, uh, the think tank sort of space, but it also I think spoke to um, so it worked on that level. I think it also spoke to sort of a popular level um, sense that like this isn't supposed to be happening anymore. Mm-hmm. The uh, amount of times I've seen people comment that on Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. Like we thought we were, you know, quote, uh, you know, we thought we were, um, you know, beyond this. Uh and, and so this, uh, the, the sort of um, anemia or complacency or just the, um, the, the kind of uh, confidence that squashes imagination that was in the policy space, that like, you know, our, our rules, our organizations, the, the, the system we've set up um, makes it so that uh, a sort of land war occupying, a war to occupy, to take over territory like that does not happen in Europe anymore. Um, th- that sort of filtered out to the populace too. And yes. it's, it's been, um, it's been, it's been uh, I think, jarring to see um, how um, how much hasn't changed right. about human nature? How much hasn't changed about war? Um, like people have been commenting on sort of, uh, wow, like we've never had this sort of view of war, like we have cell phones, and it's like, you know, like maybe we have a bit more of like a personal view, but but what's been jarring to me watching this play out is um, the 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 way in which war strips away so many pretenses of um, you know modern life uh, and modern living, and it's been it's been it's been jarring to see. Um, fathers saying goodbye to daughters and um, kids um, huddling underground 
with stuffed animals. Um, yes, we were just watching the news a couple hours ago, and um, this parliamentary member was talking about how they're playing the turtle game with children and teaching them how to be a turtle whenever they would hear, you know, a plane or a bomb nearby so that the child would actually get into the proper, you know, bomb position without trying to scare them. Um, and it's it's the kind of thing that... And, and, she, <laughs> um, and she said, what we, uh, um, in the interview, she said... Um, she she said we've had to do that quite a few times today, and it's it's just um, it's 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 a heartbreaking thing. Um, yeah, and I and I I included foreign correspondence. Uh, not to go back to the piece, but I included foreign correspondence in my foreign policy establishment because you're completely right, Michael. It's um, the media will cover what they're being told, um, and not just during time of war, but when you know countries are not at war, and if the think tankers and policymakers are talking to you know the media and talking about these concepts then it will be surprising to the viewer when war does start again in a place with in which you once thought was peaceful when you're seeing a man make a territory grab when you're kind of told land grabs are passe they don't really happen anymore and yes the nature of war and unjust war it still happens it's alive and well yeah. This is human nature, and I think that th this is why anybody who's sitting in the United States who doesn't exactly have a connection to Ukraine is sitting here very jarred. Um, and so this is something that's been on my mind for, for a good decade now about how we need better ideas and we need to be communicating um, the reality of the world. Yeah. I, I do think, right, just I want to move on to some other pieces, but and, – and I know you, you – you agree here, and I agree with you. We we need to. There needs to be a rethinking of sort of the foreign policy toolbox in the twenty first century. The impression I don't want to give, um, and what I think we need to be really wary of, is that we've just yet to find the right technocratic solution to make sure that this never happens again. Oh yeah, that's I not mean, what I'm talking about. I mean, yeah. I I just think. Um, Part of what we need to learn um, uh, is uh, that there may not be such a thing as the sort of perfect man-made structures, procedures to prevent evil things from taking place in the world. Yep, there is no silver bullet to pretty much any human problem. And... Uh, and so um, we always we always need to do the best that we can. <laughs> you know, we always need to pursue peace. Um, we always need to uh, sort of you know be be vigilant. Um, but there is a real pitfall with um, the sort of hubris that comes with thinking, oh, now we've solved, we've solved the human violence problem. We, we've solved the, uh, for the impulses that, uh, that lead countries and people to war with one another, something that has plagued human beings for their entire history. We're the generation. We're the ones who figured out 
who have reined in all of the worst impulses. And so uh, we need to improve the foreign policy toolbox. We also need to, I think, um, I mean, this this is not to go down a whole other, um, you know, th this is why I've been uh, relatively convinced on the nuclear weapons front, mm -hmm. which yes. is uh, that kind of power is not something I trust humans, even with the best intentions, of yeah. wielding well. Um, well, we we could we could maybe talk about that in a later episode. I think that the second half of this episode I wanted to talk about how this has been um, received, and, and what I want to do just up front is just state that I think everything that we talk about in this part of the episode are not just things that we're seeing sort of out there that we're critiquing. I do think that there's been some interesting commentary about like people imposing whatever sort of political views or sort of culture war sort of agenda on this crisis. Um, we, I certainly don't want to, uh, don't want to do that and sort of anything that I say in, in, uh, in the next 10 minutes or so, um, I say it in part because there are questions that I've been asking, things I've been um, wrestling with, impulses that I've had. But Melissa, you tweeted something really interesting about a photo uh, that had been circulating everywhere. Everywhere. And just describe the photo a bit um, and, and, um, and what prompted you to, to make the comment you did. Yes, so the photo that's going around on social media um, is a photo of a little girl and a little boy holding hands, holding stuffed animals in, in, the, in their other hand, and looking at a tank going by full of Ukrainian soldiers, and the little boy is saluting. And this has been shared sometimes without commentary, sometimes with a, you know, Ukraine is so brave, or, you know, I feel so proud, something, something towards patriotic ends. And I have a red line in my life where I do not want children being used in any kind of war photo, whether or not it leads towards patriotic ends that actually motivate people um, to, you know, stand up and help fight. Um, it's it's a red line for me. It when you use children, that's when it crosses the line for me and my definition of what war propaganda is. Um, I'm not okay with it at all. Yeah, so let me read the tweet. So you said, it's that time of the decade again where we should be more worried about how we're going to get psychosocial support to these children rather than valorize their presence in war, no matter how patriotic it looks uh, in imagery. Yes, because you want to know what happens? We see these images because it's much easier actually to see images like this than actually see the video of the father saying goodbye to his daughter Yeah. because it's not a moving image and you don't see emotions. Mm. And these children are not, are not facing you with their faces. It just looks like something that's proud and patriotic, like, oh, they're waving off their father to war kind of thing, how, you know, how proud they must be. This is the sort of thing where you see the photo, you think, wow, Ukrainians are so brave, and then you move on with your life. 
And what happens is that those children are actually real and they have to live through this. And when children are presented with any kind of image like this directly in front of them, tanks going by of men with guns as your country is being bombed and you hear the bombs and you see the flashes of light, these children are going to be so deeply traumatized just like the children of Syria and Iraq over the past decade. They, they are going to need an immense amount of psychosocial support. And so what I worry about is that we become anesthetized to images like this. And especially because what this brings up again, because Ukraine in and of itself, this whole war, Russia going after Ukraine and attacking, reminds us of the Cold War. It reminds us of World War II. What happened a lot in World War II? We used a lot of patriotic imagery about women and protecting your children and things like that and so you think about things like it makes your brain go back to things like that either you saw it in a textbook or you lived it in real life and you just forget about the fact that these are human beings who are experiencing something horrific and will be forever changed by it and will need deep support and we should be remembering hmm maybe i'll send 10 bucks over to like that ukraine charity or that church that's going to be helping yeah. these children get through this yeah sure i i, I did read some uh, so people were sharing this now. Uh, I did read something that suggested that the photo itself was actually uh, years old. Yep. Um, so it actually wasn't even from this this conflict, though that's obviously the impression people give. And I think that most people have when they share it. They think yes. it, this is a this is a current photo, um, and therefore, like this is this is how children are experiencing and yes. this is how the country is experiencing yes. is, is is experiencing this this current conflict um you know I, i'm not sure i have you know so so i think photojournalists have like a professional obligation etc to um take photos i think that there are some uh, instances where uh, photojournalism of children during wartime has, has uh, had, has, has actually uh, sort of influence reached the public in, such as in Vietnam. Uh, obviously, uh, it doesn't mean it's sort of ethically sort of pure. I, I don't have, uh, I, I'm just saying I don't have sort of um, sort of hard line sort of prohibitions against it. I, what, what I did like about your tweet though was, and again, I say this with, um, uh, you know, with, with humility, and, and I don't mean to sort of uh, just be sort of critiquing others and certainly not be judgmental. I have wondered, though, Melissa, um, uh, whether we've learned anything about war, whether... No. whether um, it's been really, really sort of surprising to me, uh, um, jarring to me to see sort of those who sp sort of speak out about toxic masculinity, sort of uh, praising the taking up of arms uh, as sort of the peak definition of masculinity. It's been a little surprising to me to see, um, and this is something I've really wrestled with. I I wonder if our listeners have sort of seen, uh, have sort of experienced seeing news of like a Russian uh, 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 aircraft being shot down and thought like, yes. Um, I certainly have, 
have felt that. I will say I had to like check check myself. I I should say I think the the ethics of this war are pretty clear from what what I can tell. I want Ukraine to maintain control of Ukraine. I want uh, uh, Kiev to stand, and th that is in all practicality going to require uh, Ukraine inflicting enough damage on Russia troops that the cost of continuing to try and occupy and overthrow the head of state in Ukraine becomes too high for uh, Putin to continue. And so um, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be sort of naive here. Um, a just outcome here, or um, I don't even know if I want to use that that language, but um, in order for the people being attacked to survive, it's going to attack. Uh, it's going to require the aggressor to take some losses. So that's a reality. What I what I want to call out in myself, and what I want to just caution folks about, is this sort of jingoistic, frankly, kind of like easy like boasting. It seems like our imagination for war has been less shaped by a conception of the dignity of human beings and more shaped by like Marvel Universe. I mean, I'm seeing yeah. I'm seeing people share videos of, for instance, there was a video of the, um, uh, the I think it was a uh, uh, Ukraine, I think it was a ship that was under under attack yeah. and the Russian the Russians said, uh, you know, surrender and the Ukraine's uh, said, the Ukrainians said, go F yourself. Yes. People, people were like, oh, this is, I mean, it was like people were watching the, that scene in Independence Day where uh, the guy in the, in the airplane, you know, drives, uh, you know, flies into the oh, yeah. spaceship and, you know, like a big celebratory moment. And I was just thinking, can I don't mean to be trite or like trickly sweet. I just think we really need to keep in mind. There's not a Russian mother in Russia who I I find it hard to believe there's a there's a uh, there's a um, a mother in Russia who um, is glad to see uh, her child go to war for Putin's agenda and die in a Slavic country next door. Um, that is going to hurt that Russian mother just as much as the mother of a Ukrainian uh, 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 service member. Um, uh, we've been reading stories about Russian service members being sort of sent in and only once they've sort of arrived, uh, sort of once, once they've uh, sort of been um, deployed, have they come to understand that their orders are to kill Ukrainians. And so... Again, this is war. Like there are going to be losses. Um, I, I do just want to caution against some of the jingoism, and um, and, and just note like how uh, how easily that sentiment transfers to scenarios that maybe aren't as uh, clean in terms of or or clear in terms of who's the aggressor. Uh, who's the clearly unjust actor and who's the just actor, right? I mean, um, uh, uh, there are Russians who think that they're the just actor because of the information they've been giving. So, so I, I don't want to don't want to belabor the point. I I, I do. Um, 
it, it has been it has been jarring to see in myself and in some of the social media conversation this sort of play out as if we're rooting for sports teams or if we're watching a movie play out um, when these are when these are our human lives at stake and we're we're, we're talking about um, people taking up arms in Ukraine who are um, for just the last story that I'll, I'll tell us there was a and it was very moving to see um, I don't know if you saw the uh, the photo of the older Ukrainian man I mean he looked like he could have oh, been yes. 70 80 with the brown leather bag and he said that he he was reporting to to serve yes um, and uh, yeah like what sacrifice what what um, what what bravery what courage it, it also says something about uh, the absolute dire straits that this country is in uh, and its people are in and the fact that uh, none of them would are like the fact that they're in this position. This is the kind of bravery, this is the kind of courage that no one wants to have to display in their lifetime. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. But Melissa, what have, what have you thought about some of these dynamics? Yeah, I, so I have worked for an actual organization that does cultural diplomacy, or, or in the United States we call it public diplomacy. And public diplomacy is this idea that the government will put out images, will conduct, you know, like arts programs and cultural programs and exchange programs and all sorts of things in order for people of another country to view that country favorably. And there's something going on here with that. And I please do not take me as a cynic here because again, there are realities and there actually is courage and bravery going on in here. So please do not take me wrong in this way. But for example, President Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, has been marvelous so far throughout this entire before the war began and now during he there have been videos released of him in this on the straits of kiev um with his cabinet with various cabinet members to show that he is not run he is given quotes to the united states about you know send us you know i don't want to leave but just send us arms kind of he said something much more like fantastical than that um and so he's being propped up as like wow i cannot believe that ukraine has this leader like this and i can't believe that he's being so brave and that he's actually out there in a t-shirt in full tactical gear like going to fight and you know fighting for his people and he's not deserting them all of those things are true and i think what's going on here in a lot of ways is that several things can be true at one given yeah. time yes 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 so president Zelensky, he's a politician he's a former actor who played a president during crisis times and then you have this public diplomacy element and all those things exist meaning that a lot of these images and these videos are being released in calculated ways right are being purposely released there you know some of this is just you know a random you know ukrainian who happens to be on the street is releasing whatever they've seen but the president himself his team is releasing these things because yes he wants to provide courage and bravery to his people who are having to take up arms the 67 year old having to take up arms the couple who just got married yesterday because they don't know if they're going to live and they're going to go fight together like he needs to provide that leadership to his people so that they actually will go out and fight but Zelensky does understand his role perfectly 
he is brave and he does believe the things that he's saying, but he also is playing the role of a president, of a leader. These things are calculated. There are yeah. public diplomacy aims here. And so um, that's not, I'm again, I'm not trying to take a cynical take here, but again, it goes along with what you're saying with like, again, my, my reactions as well. You're not the only one experiencing this of when you do see like him standing out in the streets, you get like this sense of pride. But a lot of this, it's, it's, decades and decades of glorification of war. War has been glorified time and time again, every single time it happens. And then in our current age with like the amount of hyper-connectedness we have like and video games and things like that, movies, people feel like they're watching a video game rather than watching actual people. Yeah. That's, it can feel like you're almost kind of like having an out-of-body experience looking at it from yeah. above and it's not actually real and happening it's it's a strange it's a strange dynamic and y- and if you're feeling like the same way as Michael and I are when you see these images and sometimes they're like yeah go get them kind of thing you have to step back and say hold on what am I actually seeing here what are the actual human consequences should I be reacting in this way those are good questions to be asking yourself yeah. because then what you do is you're fighting against these I think human inclinations but also environmental and you know the culture we a lot of yeah. us have grown up in, in in not just the united states and a lot of countries sort of fighting against this um glorification of war i guess is, is yes how i can sum it up yes uh, yeah so two things one just one other sort of thing i want to say on the toxic max- masculinity piece which is like um my understanding is that like Part of the argument that sort of uh, folks make uh, is that, uh, yes, masculinity is defined by uh, valorous sort of conduct in like war settings. Yeah. Uh, and, and the and the arguments that, that that's made is that like the reason young men are struggling is that they don't have the occasion for mm-hmm. that kind yeah. of if you accept that premise then yes uh, you you could um you could argue like young men need to like rein it in and like you know too bad or uh i don't know find uh, like go to war like what uh but the other way that that argument goes is with vigilantism. Like, yeah. like that's exactly what's that's exactly like the sort of sentiment that like um, when you when you tell when you tell the story that uh, no, no like uh, uh, violence in the right context that's the peak of masculinity, um, uh, sort of standing up for your rights that's the that's the peak of of, of the masculinity. Then you 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 do sort of um, you set a context where um, where where yeah where where uh, people are then if uh, a a um, if a true sort of warranted outlet for that is not available then they start concocting outlets for that kind of um, that kind of conduct. Uh, on their own, so I'll, I'll just I'll just say that, leave that there, and, and folks can, you know, think about it, comment on it, etc. I do want to make one more comment, but do you have something to say on that point? No, I, it just goes back to the point where I, I think a lot of what's happening is 
specifically like with that example is actually a really good example for this is a lot of people like to sort of write these little stories in their head yes about how things are going to go how their life is how they're going to be the hero and I think that that's what they're seeing with some of this imagery is like oh this is exactly how the books and the movies are written so this is yeah and I'm on the good guy side and this is exactly how yeah 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 you know like that's what I'm tamping down as my like visceral reaction to a lot of this stuff I mean so much of this to use like Gen Z language there's a lot of main character main character energy main character energy going on here we won't belabor it here no I understand I think she's probably a wonderful person Uh, I, I really don't mean to like um attack the person i'm sure she's some wonderful human rights work i I understand i think she does human trafficking work i i care about that issue i'm so grateful for what she's done but that video of the woman who decided that in the middle of all of this the the contribution to make and like it wasn't a tweet like but like yeah, so you're, like you're talking a, about the actress Anna Lynn McCord. I I mean I wasn't gonna name her but okay. yeah but well, but yeah. but yeah this actress who recorded a video uh, that was sort of a rhyming poem about how if she was Putin's mother he would have been loved enough that he wouldn't want to cause war I, I mean yeah I mean just the the impulses folks have to sort of um, and this step is step in and take the microphone. Step in, take the microphone. But also, here's the other piece that I, I want to put on the table, which is uh, Philip Reef, Christopher Lash, some others uh, wrote in the mid 20th century about um, uh, the rise of the therapeutic, and when they were writing about it it was just sort of settle, uh, setting in. Now the therapeutic is just our culture. Like it's not something that's emerging. It's just what we're stewing in. Um, and gosh, the reactions to so much of our politics and so much of sort of world events reflects this. But so much of the response to this week's events have been therapeutic in, in nature. Yeah. They've been about... What are like the human stories that we could find that could help us, the the the, the viewer, viewer yeah. sort of the viewer, uh, yeah, the, the viewers, the observer, sort of uh, um, process what's happening. There, there was uh, uh, there were some people who were sending around um, NPR. Oh, yeah. NPR sent out a, a news story. You know, if you're really stressed out. Uh, by the news here are like five steps you could take to like I don't have it in front of me but it was like you know to unwind to you know for self-care during like that's all that's a that that is that has not been the traditional that is not the historic response to to uh wars uh happening uh an yeah. ocean away that's like that like that, like that is like that is not uh Maybe there's some justification for it. I'm sure there are all kinds of like, but but I'm just, it, it, it is not the normal way to approach it. The, 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 uh, or, or it doesn't have to be the normal way to sort of approach things. And, and the fact that NPR is responding in that way yeah, is an indication of the, the kind of culture and the kind of um, demands that the audience is, 
is putting and sort of sort of stewing it. But but the the other story I wanted to, and this is I think the last thing I want to say, which is just back on the jingoistic front. Um, I'll never forget, and you've heard me tell this story before. Yeah. Um, 2009, 2010, Barack Obama was in office, uh, but Rick Warren held a Saddleback Civil Forum with, for, at this time, at this moment, former President George W. Bush. And I would urge folks to to, to watch it. Uh, I always respected uh, President Bush, even uh, as I disagreed with him, obviously on, on some things. But but um, I I respected him uh, even more following this. Um, uh, Pastor Rick is sort of uh, asking George W. Bush about his decision to go to Iraq, mm-hmm. and of course Barack Obama had won an election uh, and had become president uh, by distinguishing himself not just from Bush but from Hillary Clinton in his opposition to Iraq. And so sort of public opinion and sort of public capital for supporting the war in Iraq was at a, was at a low point. And um, uh, President Bush is asked about his decision to go to war. Uh, and he gives what I thought, he, he still believes he, he made the right decision. He I thought he gave a pretty humble explanation of the, the thought process that went into it. What was incredible was there's a moment where he talks about, and it was clear, it's clear watching him. I would, we could probably put, the video is probably still available online. We'll put this in the show notes. If folks want to watch it, I'd really encourage you to. It's clear watching him how seriously, how soberly, almost with a certain sort of sadness and definitely a heaviness with which he describes this to an audience of Christians at an evangelical megachurch. He describes it's this decision to go to war. And he, he, um, he, he sort of s- says something about, you know, like I felt like we had to do it, you know, for, for, for liberty and freedom. And, you know, he just sort of, he, he makes a statement about sort of the principles that, that led him to make the decision. But again, very like soberly. And the audience erupts. It was, it was as if, they were so uncomfortable with the sobriety yeah. that Bush talked about his decision to go to war, and he had only talked for a few minutes. That they needed, they needed an excuse. They were they were waiting to release the energy that had been pent up, where they could not just think that going to Iraq was the right thing to do, but but something. Uh, Something to throw a ticker tape parade, or something to to sort of rah rah about, and Bush cuts them off. So the the crowd erupts, and Bush says, "No, no, no! Like that was not my intent. Like my intent was not to get like a patriotic sort of um, sort of uh, um, you showed them sort of response." And I'll, I'll never forget that it was it was and I've seen this over my career in different in different instances but it is a it is a shocking thing when it's and in some ways maybe it shouldn't be shocking um, but in this it was it was in, it was an evangelical church it was it was a wartime president um, 
who had to tone down uh, the eagerness about war in, in an evangelical church. And I, I'm saying, look, um, I think, pray for Ukraine. Um, uh, uh, again, sort of uh, just practically speaking, Ukraine surviving entails losses. But um, Dallas Willard was once asked um, uh, if someone was uh, something like this. It, it was uh, like if someone was threatening you with, with violence or your family with violence, would you, would you, um, would you respond to stop them or, or would, you, would you basically let them harm, harm your family? And Dallas paused for a, for a bit. And he said, he, he said, I think I, I would stop them, but I do it in a way, um, I, I do it in a way, uh, I do it without anger in my heart. I do it um, as the best available option for their good uh, and the good of others involved that was possible. And, and I think that's sort of the orientation of my heart that I want to try and have as we follow this news and as we see what's happening, which is, uh, uh, I, 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 is to um, not celebrate Russian deaths, <laughs> uh, not celebrate a Russian casualties, um, uh, but to um, hope for the best outcome um, given the situation we're in. And, and, and again, that will probably, uh, th that, that certainly requires Ukrainians being able to defend themselves and defend themselves sufficiently to, to push back uh, Russia and uh, make the cost-benefit analysis such that Putin um, uh, uh, ceases military operation in, in, in the country. Yeah, I think we should end it there. Okay. I couldn't agree more with that posture. So uh, we know this will continue, and we'll continue to cover um, Russia's invasion in our newsletter at reclaiminghope.substack.com, and we hope that you'll join us. Um, and yeah, I think that we all just need to continue to pray for Ukraine and pray for leaders in all kinds of positions in the foreign policy establishment who have to be making all kinds of decisions, whether it's in Ukraine, the United States, in the EU, wherever. Yeah. yeah. Amen. All right, folks, this has been Where is the Love? We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us. Take care. Bye.